So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Nathan Koskovich, and I'm here with Scott Marble, the relatively new chair of the School of Architecture at Georgia Tech. Say hi, Scott. Hello. Hey. Um, so, we, where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? Um, originally from Texas. Um, I was uh, born in Dallas, and then um, uh, probably in elementary school at some point moved to a small East Texas town, uh, went to high school there, and then uh, from there went to Texas A&M for, okay. yeah, Texas A&M for undergraduate uh, in architecture, and then moved to New York and went to Columbia for grad school, and mm -hmm. then never left New York. Jack, uh, Jack Pyburn, who's done one of these interviews, went to Texas A&M and played played football there, and he's very shy to talk about his football career, because to him it was all a means of getting an architecture education. That's all he wanted to do, so. It's he, funny, I've met Jack. He, 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 he introduced himself okay. and actually came. We had a meeting and talked about A&M. Uh, uh, talked about a &M. And how it's changed. And how it's changed, yeah, we can't yeah. even recognize it now. Oh, yeah. Um, Georgia Texas, I don't know how fast Texas A&M has grown, but Georgia Tech, since the Olympics, has been throwing up buildings left and right. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of universities and institutes yeah. have just completely transformed. Okay, so Dallas has got some actually some pretty nice buildings. But what what ended up drawing you into architecture? It's funny. I was one of these guys that at a very young age knew I wanted to be an architect. Uh, even in high school, I was taking you know, drawing classes and mechanical drawing classes. And mm -hmm. my grandfather was an architect, which probably had some influence. Very good drawing, very good at developing space. 
philosophy or something like that brought a whole new kind of angle and intellectual rigor. Sometimes a different level of how they turn it into buildings, but it was a very different mix. Yeah. It was really, really, I thought, kind of exciting. It was great. I mean, I learned, you know, all instructors say, you learn as much from your from your peers than you do from instructors. Yeah. And when you have this diverse set of backgrounds uh, uh, among your peers, it's, 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 it's amazing to see how they think about these things relative. You know, you, if you have a background, you go into uh, you go into like a graduate program, sort of thinking, well, I kind of got this figured out. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm well on my way. And then you realize, well, you know, it's like you, you really don't. You, you really yeah. you, you're just you're, you're bandwidth of understanding all of the things that impact architecture really gets expanded. Yeah. And it is very exciting. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And you're asked to kind of intellectualize your your work for the first time. And that, that that can take stuff you think you know and put it on your head. Um, That's right. So was there anything in particular that you remember from grad school that was sort of either you taken with you or was a moment where you thought, oh, I'm never going to put that together? Yeah, I, mean, I would say it, it, uh, at that period it, at Columbia, it was very transitional time between deans. It was before Bernard Schumann came in. Um, it was at the end of the previous deans uh, James Polshek, who mm -hmm. had an amazing, still does have an amazing part his the kind of next generation of his practice in New York is still quite amazing. But uh, so we were kind of in a transition period. So the, the probably the most influential person for me at that time, Stephen Hall, was just getting started, but he had a pretty big impact on the school. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then uh, and then really Ken Frampton. You know, he, he was yeah. probably the most influential uh, instructor, professor at that time for me. And, as far as thinking and talking about architecture. And yeah, and just understanding how to interpret history yeah. in a way that had such incredible relevance to practice. And, yeah. um, and also just to, to, to start to understand architecture's position relative to kind of local and regional context and also in a kind of global context. And that was right when his theory of critical regionalism was developing. Yeah. Um, and so that was very, uh, very much a part of, of you know, what I was learning. Yeah. Uh, I still haven't completely gotten over that, um, <laughs> even though, you know, there's been a lot of criticism around that theory. Um, yeah. But I think it's still very important, actually. It's still very relevant today. Yeah, I, I remember reading that um, critical regionalism paper in college, and if I think about it, it was basically, if I remember, kind of a response to the modern the high modern idea that the whole world would be uniform, we'd do everything the same way because it's scientific. And um, people started saying things like, well, in the rainforest, it rains all the time, so we should do a smoke roof, maybe. Yeah. Um, no, it's true. It was, it, was a, it, was a, I mean, it was in response to the kind of universalization mm -hmm. uh, and the, uh, around high modernism. But also, it, that was, it was funny. When that first, when that essay first came out, I remember it came out in a in a uh, a book of essays right. titled The Anti Aesthetic. I don't know if you remember that book. I do remember the book too. It's a yeah, title you don't forget. You don't forget, and it was a very influential book in, at that period, and it, it combined a number uh, uh, essays of a number of discourse, a number of fields, you know, into one book. And, and Franklin's article was the one architecture essay, you know, I believe. Uh, but it was a, it was combined with a bunch of other essays. Yeah. It was trying to really 
sort of put architecture in a broader cultural context. Um, right. But a very influential text, for sure. And I think, and I, I think that was the other thing that maybe Frampton was responding to was this de-intellectualizing architecture where, so the high modern was the 50s, we're talking about the 80s. Yep. The, um, there was a very academic period there where it became postmodern. It was architecture as a language and architecture talking about architecture. And it was very abstract and very dense uh, books accommodated buildings so you could understand them. Yep. Um, which is wonderfully valuable, but it also feels a bit of a burden sometimes. Yeah. I think so. I think and you f feel free to correct me. I'm trying to remember this from the last yeah, time. Yeah, no, it's. It, I think that's that. I think that's right. And and it's kind of amazing how, you know, his work has withstood the test of time in many ways. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I was I uh, organized a panel, a very kind of informal panel in New York just last year. Or maybe it was at the end of last year, I think, uh, with him and um, and and the, the the sort of unspoken theme that was there was like um, the sort of evolution of technology and production in architecture. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him to join, and then I asked a, a colleague, a younger colleague of mine from Columbia, David Benjamin, to join, and we had just this this discussion, yeah. uh, a kind of informal panel discussion about technology, you know, it, it, sort of, and uh, how I looked at it from my generation, yeah. Frampton's generation, and then David Benjamin of another generation. It was just, it was just amazing, because he's still so insightful and relevant in, right. in, in his thinking. So, yeah, so he was very influential when I was in grad school. Yeah, and I think, I think we've heard sometimes, if, well, as always, if you're a, a young person, you're coming to something, you, you, you assume the world was whole and complete in that state, that you come to it in forever. And you forget how much that work by him and others have opened up architecture yep. beyond to be more flexible and beyond simple um, mechanical ideas that sometimes don't really stand up to scrutiny if you yep. look closely at them. Yep. Um, so, and you mentioned your practice and attitude towards uh, towards technology. I, I I I caught most of your lecture you did was kind of an you did as an introduction to the school. Um, try to randomly make those lectures and I just happened to walk in there mm -hmm. and then I started piecing it together I'm like oh he's a new dean okay oh no I've seen that project before <laughs> and, and I did like the way you talked about um, a lot of technology it seemed to put it in a, a place that was sensible and not just doing it for doing its sake so yep. um, I think is if I remember you started your teaching career um, maybe not started it, but a heavy dose of it was working in the the the, the shop, and all architecture schools have a shop that you build models in and you cut tools. Yeah, yeah, it was, it, it was, I would say the, the first, the first um, kind of phase of, of uh, my interest uh, in digital technology was in the early 90s mm -hmm. at Columbia. Um, and uh, it was the it was really when the computers got introduced into design studios, and I don't know that Columbia was the first, but it kind of gets credited with being the first kind of what was called in the paperless studio. Mm -hmm. um, and it was um, there were three critics that were asked to teach this new kind of studio with you know through software and, and computers, and and my interest from the very beginning was always connected to production um, and how. Um, digital technology could link 
design and architecture back to making and fabrication and production, even right. at that stage. And, and the early, I think the, 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 the more dominant early interest in, the, in that period was around uh, kind of explorations of, of, of uh, sort of new formal uh, genres, yeah. which was amazing. And I was, I was interested in that, but I was more interested in how it kind of linked design to production. Yeah, and I think that's the, the that period too, of course, is when you had what, what we called in class bubble buildings, where, mm -hmm. as you said, there, there's this technology, they suddenly can do forms they could, and it's great, amazing exploration, but it can only go so far. And I think setting up in that as a goal and tying it in with, well, how do we tie this into a production process is really what started to give that research some meaning. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there, all these areas of investigation were really important, and they continue to be important. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, arguably, a, a lot of the formal investigations that were going on at that time, when they when these things started to get built in the you know mid to late nineties, yeah, th those designs were driving the development of of the production technology. Right. So that's where things started to get really interesting. Is that it's likely that some of the advances that, that the construction industry made in these very advanced uh, computationally driven production processes would not have happened right. without the ambitious designs that were driving them. So, yeah. so I think that's where you know, there was a very interesting synergy between formal investigations and investigations around production yeah. where they were really helping and, and kind of pushing each other along. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the the kind of tricks of design is it you're, it's tempting to think of we'll do everything rational and stepped out and knowable, um, but then you kind of only get what you know, and sometimes you kind of take a, a leap to do like I don't I don't know how we do this. I think I could figure it out if it happens. So yeah. let me do this, and now you've created a new problem for yourself, and you find a solution to that's that. Right. Invented that's right. Invented a system you wouldn't have done if you were trying to invent that system. That's that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, yeah. it, I, I you know you hear story after story of in, in that early period where there would be a building that had been designed that was incredibly ambitious formally. Mm -hmm. It had, a contractor had said, you know, okay, I, I can do this. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, won the bid to build it. Mm -hmm. And then got into it and realized, I have no idea how to build this. Right. So all of a sudden there's this new problem, this new dilemma. And from that situation where you've, 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 you've got a, an ambition, you've got a design, You've got somebody who wants to build it, but the methodologies are not there. That's right. when new methodologies get invented. They, right. they find the people, the few people around the world that know how to do this, they, they piece it all together, and all of a sudden, these amazingly new protocols and kind of workflows that I call them um, start to emerge. And that's, yeah. how, that's how innovation happens. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it actually reminds me, I've never put this together before, of the uh, Villa Savoy by Corbusier, which is supposed to be this industrial age modern building. Well, it was built by hand because what he was do there there wasn't technology to build it that way. There weren't. Yep. So um, the ideas often outstrip the the technology in the moment, and the technology catches up. That's right. No, the the, the famous uh, um, you're making me think of this famous photograph of Frank Lloyd Wright <clears throat> uh, standing underneath the mushroom columns at the Johnson Wax Complex. Right. Where I think the contractor, everybody was just saying, you know, this will you can't do this and. So he said, well, build it. And I think they loaded it up with sandbags or something, put an mm -hmm. enormous amount of weight on it. And then he stood under it just to make the point that, look, you know, yeah. this, is how, this is how something new emerges is that you have to take risk, you have to take chances and, and just move forward. Yeah. And a lot of people say they like innovation and risk taking, but they really like is 
taking advantage of it once somebody else has proved it. <laughs> That's right. They want to be the second person to right. do it. Because <laughs> innovation sometimes ends with a big, giant failure. That's right. That's right. No, you have so, to be willing to fail or, or you, yeah. you can't innovate. Yeah. And, um, and I'd forgotten about this, this part of the discourse, too. You mentioned of the architects trying to reclaim a bigger part of the construction process from going kind of the medieval idea of the master builder who designed it and placed the bricks. And this was a representative, I guess, a sort of return to that in some ways. Yeah, that, that's, it's an often quoted kind of example of, of this new period where, um, where, you know, there's an interest and an ambition among architects to claim more sort of space within the design mm -hmm. and construction industry, and, and the reference of the master builders utilized a lot. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a catchy uh, comparison, and it, it's useful to a certain extent, but, but I think it has limits in terms of how you can really make that comparison, uh, because it's, um, there's no doubt that, that we're at a point where what we do as architects, which is draw buildings or model buildings, yeah. Um, has a whole new agency, meaning that that the models that we build, the, the drawings that we do, can now literally connect directly to forms of production. Right. So that's models. an incredible. Yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of you know pedestrian in a certain way, but the power of that is pretty enormous. That literally drawings can drive production through CNC. Yeah. And. I don't think we've figured out exactly how to leverage that as, as a mm -hmm. profession, as a discipline. Yeah. There are certainly interesting examples out there uh, of firms trying to push the limits. But, yeah. but in general, as a profession, we have not leveraged that yet. Yeah. And I think it's, it's something that is still, uh, uh, it's still to come. But we have to be, in, as a, again, as a profession, we have to be interested in taking that on. Yeah. And, and, and the old method, to contrast that, was you would draw the building, then the contractor would take the component, draw what they can make, and then you would approve it or not. And sometimes there's not an exact fit because of technology or it's just sort of burdensome to go through that and be able to just share a document completely with the contractor. It takes out that step. That's right. Right. The translation that, that, that can often lead to unfortunate results, you know, uh, it, 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 we're able to do that now. We're able to mm -hmm. eliminate that translation. And some of the most ambitious projects being built today actually do that. You know, three-dimensional models will be built yeah. of components and parts and actually entire buildings. And those things are literally the fabrication uh, drawings that are, that are being used to fabricate parts. And the two-dimensional drawings that get generated because they have to contractually are not even used. Mm -hmm. You know, the three-dimensional information is literally driving the machines to build the physical right. parts, and the two-dimensional contractual drawings, again, which are required, are not even really utilized in the workflow. So this is, again, it's a very interesting transitional period we're, we're in right yeah. now, but, but it's, not, it, it's, not, um, it's not inevitable that, that the transition will happen in a way where architects are actually positioning themselves in in, in, in a more uh, in a more kind of in a better way. Mm -hmm. It's not inevitable that that will happen, and this is what I think is is important at a place like Georgia Tech as we teach the next generation uh, to come out and make change. Is that you know you're, the the way in which practice works, what you're going to step into when you get out, you know it's not given what's going to mm -hmm. happen. And mm -hmm. in fact, I think the transition 
is still very much under uh, in under uh, underway, and you know as architects and as the next generation of architects, students have to come out and understand that so that they can actually take advantage of it and leverage it. Right, right. It's it's, it's takes a little effort on your part to move it. In it a that's right. I mean, I, I often refer to this idea that industry is there to be designed, and architects are designers. Therefore, we should be designing industry. We right. should be designing the organization of industry. We shouldn't just be saying industry is a finite thing. It's already there. It's already set. We should actually come out with a, and I'm saying we as in architects, Professing, yeah. should be com coming out of school and entering into the profession with a kind of entrepreneurial spirit that we can do better. We can make this profession better. Yeah, I think that speaks a little bit to the universalization of design skills. Like you don't have to be, even in traditional practice, you don't have to be an expert in designing structures. You know somebody who is, That's right. and you know it's reasonable, and you move it through there. And it's and it's also design is a, is really about kind of creative problem solving, solving complex problems that can't be simplified. And so in that way, designing a, a workflow is no different than designing a building that's, if you have enough knowledge. That's right. Yeah. I, I, you know, the book that I recently did is very much about that. You know, mm. you know, we know how to design buildings. Um, but there, you know, but industry, the organization of industry, workflows, processes, again, are not, they don't just exist. You yeah. Know, somebody comes up with that. And if we as architects look at it as a design problem, and not just a technical problem, but a design problem, yeah. the, the results are going to get much more interesting. A space for creativity. Absolutely, and, um, yeah. Yeah, and so... What was the name of the book? So uh, it, it was uh, the book was called Digital Workflows in Architecture, yeah. Design, um, Assembly, Industry. Those were the kind of subtopics, and Very so catchy. it basically, yeah, it basically, I wanted to call it Designing Design, but evidently there's a there's a book already oh, out yeah, called yeah. Designing Design, so we well, couldn't use that. Every good idea has been taken already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but the whole point of the book was to say that if the industry is made up of design what I call assembly and industry, if, they, if those are three components of, of you know, the AEC industry, that we, sh as architects, we should be looking at each of those as a design problem. Yeah. And so the, the kind of chapters of the book are literally called designing design, designing assembly, and designing industry. Yeah. I think that's the kind of, of deep design thinking that as a professional you have, or at least the more I learn, the more I have appreciation for it, and the more buildings I can appreciate for, for what's happening there. And I, I think a lot of people, either people fresh to architecture school or who don't think about it a lot, think of the, uh, I kind of call it the stuff of the thing instead of the thing itself. Mm -hmm. the, that deep level planning is starting to drive a lot of decisions that end up manifesting in bricks and mortar or something that's else. Right. Yeah. And um, that's why it can be so difficult sometimes when a client says, we just move a window and you're like, can't really just move a window. There's a whole not only is there a whole system of like logic here intellectually, but there's some also very good practical reasons why we did that. Right. Um, so that's as I said, that's always really interesting for a professional to see a professional thinking deeply about that stuff and coming up with new answers. Right. Um, yeah. And I think coming to Georgia Tech with your your background. Um, is really interesting. One thing I didn't, I, I knew there are a lot of guys doing this. I didn't realize the extent until we talked previously in your lecture that uh, Georgia Tech being a technical institute and the state of Georgia and all their wisdom said, landscape architecture, that's agriculture. That goes to Georgia. <laughs> right. Ar architecture, that's engineering. That goes to Georgia Tech. 
So it's a bit of a weird fit to be surrounded by these hyper logical uh, engineers who are just strange little creatures. But <laughs> be careful now; they're they're right out there. Oh, I I, I, uh, <laughs> I I married an engineer. They're wonderful little creatures, but sometimes. And I know they look at this way like us sometimes a lot. Yeah, I think they're, they're, like they're the ones who think we're the strange creatures, I think. Right. Well, maybe we are the strange creatures. <laughs> and, but there's a lot of really impressive technological research being done within the College of Architecture. Right? So I think people, even in the Greater Institute, don't realize yeah, that. Yeah. No, and that's, that's part of what attracted me to come here mm -hmm. was that the work that I was interested in and the work that I was doing... Uh, you could only take it so far in a liberal arts university um, like Columbia, which is where I was. Mm -hmm. And I realized that if I wanted to kind of take it to the next level, it was probably more suitable to be at a place like Georgia Tech where, uh, well, first of all, there's a very, very strong and uh, incredibly reputable and, and amazing, really computational uh, uh, computer school and engineering mm -hmm. school here, colleges. Yeah. Uh, that, that make up a large part of the institute. And not only that, as you mentioned, but even within the, the, the School of Architecture, there's a very strong PhD program in more applied research. Right. And so it's just all the parts were here to really come in and be able to kind of accelerate what my ambition was with really you know, developing a school that could have a meaningful impact on the future of the profession. Along the lines that you're talking about, as far as designing the industry, literally design. I mean, using leveraging technology to not only make better design, make better buildings, but to actually impact the the, the future structure of industry. Mm -hmm. And some of the work that's going on in our PhD program is having a big impact on that. And I'm, I'm hoping to kind of build on that and increase it, and 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 make more of an emphasis of design. I think right now. The school has a lot of uh, incredible strengths, but it's kind of spread out. It's disparate. It needs to be, uh, I think, integrated in a way to where we're we're helping each other uh, in a kind of integrated way to 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 um, uh, to kind of further the work that's going on. Right, right. Kind of break down some of the silos that have yep. developed over yep. time. Yeah, yeah. Even um, within a school, there are silos. Yeah. And a lot. I mean, you think maybe at our school of architecture, it's material studies or something like that, but there's actually a lot of um, computer programming going on, yep. a lot of developing tools that help. That's right. Help architects do some of the things that we're That's talking right. about. No, I mean, some of the most advanced work going on here is, is uh, the work going on in the digital uh, building lab uh, under Chuck Eastman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in his, in his area, I mean, Chuck is really a, a pioneer. He's mm -hmm. a pioneer in BIM. I mean, that's what he's really known for. Yeah, and, building information and, modeling. Yeah, building information modeling, which is a, you know a very important kind of process right currently in, right. in in architecture workflows, and we think of that as something that kind of developed in the I don't know late '90s, early 2000s mm -hmm. when architects became familiar with it. But you know, he was doing this in the '70s. I mean, this is this, this the, the seeds and the kind of foundations of this technologies have been pl in place. Yeah. Been working on for a long time, so he really is seen as a, as a kind of pioneer in this area, and it's had a huge that has had a huge impact uh, on on the uh, design and construction industry. Yeah, and, it, and right here at Georgia Tech, that's where you know. So I think that that a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, and but that's the kind of work that we can do here, um, work at very deep kind of research levels of 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 of, uh, of, uh, of what we can contribute, and then. Um, you know, also at the design level. So I think that's what's exciting about being here.
Yeah, yeah, and I think you're, you've got your finger on kind of the right, um, I think you're a good fit for Georgia Tech from your goals you've espoused, and, and Georgia Tech seems to be a good fit for you, that weird technological school with an architecture school in it. And, and, and there's also a, a strong research culture in the institute at large, so yeah. you don't have to build that, that infrastructure, it's already here. Right, right, there's yeah. the G Georgia Tech Research Institute is a ginormous, yeah, Machine that's it doing is a research machine, constantly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we wanted to talk a little bit more about. We we're talking about kind of driving, designing design, and using the kind of modeling technology to not just create innovative uh, shapes, but to start driving um, the process. And maybe, and and you kind of hinted it. A lot of your architecture starts with the process and with some other things, and the shapes kind of follow or the spaces kind of follow? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I, I do emphasize in my recent thinking anyway, very much the, the processes and again, what I've kind of referred to as workflows mm -hmm. of design. And that it largely comes from just a realization at a certain point that, that those things, those, the, the tools that we use to design as a discipline right now, have a have a tremendous impact on how we design and what we design, mm -hmm. and um, anybody that works with softwares, this particular software knows that there are biases yeah. built into those softwares. Yep. And, and on the one hand, if it's very flexible, it doesn't really limit your design capacity. But on the other hand, it can start to influence how you design. So my point is that since these these tools are becoming so integral to how we represent our ideas, we need to understand mm -hmm. how those tools are actually working. And we under need to understand the workflows um, that are starting to impact the way we design, because if, if we don't think about that, they can start having these kind of uh, indirect, almost, you don't even know what's happening, impacts on, right, right. on how you design. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's just a matter of what's easier to do. Within a given software. Software, yeah, yeah that's right doing and not realizing your, your, the design is being driven by That's right. drafting. Yeah. A, a friend of mine, Phil Bernstein, who's a, a, at Autodesk, loves to make this comment that, you know, when he drives around cities, he can look at buildings and see which ones were designed by different versions of Autodesk or <laughs> of AutoCAD. You know, it's like, and, and so, and so you could really, you can look at buildings sometimes and, and, and pretty, make a pretty good guess of which softwares were used to design it. Yeah. And when that starts happening, then you have to realize, well, yeah, sure, this stuff is having an impact on how it's designed. So you need to understand that. And if you understand it, then you can start either saying, fine, that's, I don't have a problem with it, yeah. or saying, I want to change that. I want to get yeah. involved in how these things are designed. Yeah. No, I've, I've experienced that, too, looking at buildings which maybe aren't convincing, but thinking it must have looked great in the rendering. You can, you can kind of see <laughs> There's the, a lot the, of that, yeah. the perspective they must have shown that really... Right, that, that sold the building. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things you talked a good deal about in your lecture was parametric modeling, which is this idea of... Well, we've always done as architects, you generate different ideas, but parametric is a way of sort of grabbing a computer to do a whole bunch of options at once and control that process. Yeah, in a certain way, it's it's it is just that. I mean, it's it's a way to um, it's a way to um, uh, sort of define the limits of a design problem. Yeah, and then through a set of rules, look at a number of options very quickly by yeah. by just changing. Uh, you're not really changing the parameters, but changing the inputs to the parameters. The values, yeah. So it. it so on the one hand, it's, it's simply a tool to 
to very quickly be able to study a lot of options. Yeah. Uh, that's the kind of pragmatic uh, side to it. Yeah. Um, but there's all kinds of other things that come along with that, I think, in terms of uh, how it could impact architecture. For instance, one could imagine that if you develop a parametric model, mm -hmm. which let's say is a model that given certain inputs will look different, right? Not, right. It will literally look different. That you can, you can start challenging some of the assumptions of our, of our profession that we've had for a long time, which is, for instance, the, the, the kind of uh, the one-off nature of everything we do. You know, people right. like to say that every building is a prototype because it's the first time it's been built. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that's fantastic about that, that, you know, that that, that, that forces architecture to always be new every time you build yeah. a building. But you start to wonder there's a tremendous inefficiency to that. Yeah. So is it possible through parametric design to, uh, to not reinvent the wheel every time you design a building, mm -hmm. yet to still have difference and newness, and, and, and yeah. so it doesn't start being the same. Yeah, um, so it's, it's, some people call that idea mass specificity. Or mass customization. Mass customization. Yeah, mass customization is a term that, that in many, many uh, kind of industries is just the concept that you can, um, that you can very efficiently uh, produce a lot of different options. But you, you can see what, how that could move the architects into different profession, different market sectors are not in how that would infect, impact the built world. I think you think of residential homes and a lot of them are like that. They're kind of That's stock true. parts yep. and stock, um, but they're not, architects don't work on them. One part is it's not really in the budget and if you can do one plan and use it multiple times, but not reproduce kind of banality or yeah. St. Bird, the, Repetition creating banality, no matter how great it is, you That's can right. really start to see a very different built environment. Seeing architects having a more direct impact on people's lives. Yeah, no, absolutely. And other, I could, you can think of it as other other uses too. Yeah, kind of. And there's always a dark side to this stuff. I mean, you know, you can always be exploited in a way that you know creates very banal results. So it, true, it's, it, true. it doesn't inevitably lead to good design by any means. Right. But it, but but. It, you know, with the right thinking behind it and the right application, it can be a very powerful uh, tool. Let's face it, like the, the, the sort of building, the, the single family home building industry, mm -hmm. which is known, you know, for, for building, you know, a, a lot of the same house over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, a tool like this deployed in the right way could actually have a pretty interesting impact on that industry. I mean, architects have very little impact on that industry. Yeah, yeah. But a tool like this could could add a whole new twist to the idea of, of, of uh, you know, very large residential developments of single-family houses. Mm -hmm. um, Instead of seeing the same house over and over again, one with the gingerbread, one that's with right. the columns, they would actually be significantly There could different. be some more interesting, repetitive elements to these houses as, right. yeah, as opposed to just, you, you know, the kind of generic things that don't really add up to much difference. It's, it's almost the same thing over and over and over again. Right. So I think that that's an example where even outside of so-called so high design, you know, these kind of tools could have an interesting impact. I don't know if it'd be a good impact, but it, it could be have interesting. An interesting. Yeah. It could be interesting. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, that's, that's very, very important. The technology is kind of neutral, kind of how you apply it. Um, that's right. Um, it's not, it's not going to solve problems by itself. <laughs> no. And I guess that goes back to your point about trying to um, bring students up with the idea that they can harness this to do things that maybe haven't been done by architects yeah, before. That's right. Be entrepreneurial is the word you use. Yep. Um, and you, so you've been here for 
one semester, basically? Yeah, one semester. I mean, yeah. I, I guess almost six months now. I came on July 1st. Okay, yeah. Started on July 1st and have, you know, so one semester, yeah. Yeah, and one thing I found interesting about your story is you moved, one of your, your keys to Atlanta was can you live here without a car? Right. Which probably would not have had it 10 years ago, but you're one of several people, Tim Keene, the new commissioner of planning, who that was a big goal for them in their lives. And they're, so that was, that, was it behind that, the lifestyle, or just you didn't have a driver's license, or? No, it was, it was on the one hand, it was pragmatic. I mean, I, I, um, I still go back to New York quite often because my practice is still in New York. Yeah. Um, and I, I just didn't, I wanted to keep things simple. So I thought if I bought a place uh, near Georgia Tech, I could walk. Yeah. I like to bike a lot. I bike a lot in New York, and I, and I love biking. So I thought between biking, walking, MARTA, and Uber, I could, and zip cars, I could live here very reasonably. Yeah. And it has been very easy to do. Yeah. So there was a pragmatic side to it. But then, you know, there was also a kind of um, a symbolic side. Okay. You know, I mean, a city like Atlanta, you know, I see the traffic mm-hmm. every day. I... You know, I, I, I tell the story. I was t- taking a, um, had to go to a, an appointment outside, kind of in the suburbs. Yeah. And I usually don't get out in that area, and so I had to take an Uber. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got on the freeway. Um, we were in the uh, uh, express lane, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, here I guess with two people in a car, you can be in the express yes. lane. Look to my right, and there's like eight lanes of just a parking lot. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, well, that must mean that every one of those cars has one person in it. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, if there was some way just to trigger just a slight attitude change in this city where just drive with one other person, you would reduce the traffic by half. Yeah, yeah. That's simple mathematical right. logic. I mean, it's more of a cultural thing, obviously, than a mathematical problem. But, but then I just realized that, you know, I think if more and more people set the example of how you can live in a city mm-hmm. uh, without a car, uh, you can reduce traffic, you can reduce the carbon footprint, there's all, you can increase your health, there's all kinds of things that come along with this. That, you know, if I, if I just set an example as an individual, maybe it right. could help. Yeah, and sometimes, so there's a, a little bit of a professional ethics there and a little bit of you can tell people for so long. Sometimes you eventually have to show them. That's right. And, and yeah. you can't talk about it unless you can actually do it. And yeah. and honestly, I'm not really sacrificing anything. No, <laughs> I really no. enjoy my walk to work. I mean, it's literally, there's, it's fun. It's, yeah. it's, I take, when I have to get someplace that Marta doesn't go to, it's too far. Uber. I've never waited more than four minutes for an Uber. Yeah. It costs, I guarantee you, it costs a lot less than a car payment and insurance. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty, it's, it's doable. It's very yeah. doable. Yeah. Plus, if you have an extra glass of wine, you're not in trouble. So <laughs> That's that right. That's true. Too. That's true. Um, so, yeah, so you're in the Midtown area, and I see, um, I actually just saw over your shoulder the John Portman book called Form, yeah. which I'm not, I'm not familiar with. But John is such kind of a strange enigma with an ambiguous relationship to the city. Um, so you had, had you had you been to Atlanta much before, or is this kind of your first time? Not before? a lot. I mean, I'd only come down here for a baseball tournament because my son plays baseball, and this mm-hmm. is kind of the baseball mecca for you know young up and coming baseball players. Yeah. Um, and that was really it. I mean, I, it was. I realized when I moved down here that I spent quite a bit of time in most parts of the United States, but the Southeast I really hadn't spent much time. Interesting. Yeah. So in, in Atlanta. Uh, was a really interesting place. I, I, you know, I said I grew up in Dallas, and, and I left Dallas in 
I'd say the early 80s. Okay. But I look at Atlanta, and it reminds me of Dallas at that time. I mean, I think Dallas has really made a tremendous transformation, a real investment in, in, in the arts. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of grown up as a city and, and, and done incredibly well. And, and when I came to Atlanta, it, it seemed like a place that, that was just right on the, the brink of a major change. Yeah. And it's very exciting. I mean, it's incredibly exciting to think about what Atlanta could be in 10 or 20 years. Yeah, and I think that feels that Atlanta could be its best in 10 or 20 years is a kind of a new idea that it couldn't be um, just bigger. So, yeah, yeah, that, it, yeah. that there's, there's more qualitative things about the city that could start to, to happen. And, and I think it's, I don't know, I think that there's, there's a lot of indicators that, 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 that tell me that, that, uh, that that's possible and that it's yeah. moving in that direction. And, and to be able to be part of that was very enticing also. Yeah, there was, um, I think it's a way of illustration for that, the difference between Atlanta and Dallas where they are in their development was the um, 17th Street Bridge was supposed to be a, Cal well, I don't know if it was supposed to be, there was a plan to make it a Calatrava design bridge at one mm -hmm. point. And, and the powers that be just looked at it and said, why are you paying that much for a bridge? It's stupid, we'll just build a, G dot, a, a, a double T G dot bridge. And yep. it's kind of missing the point of how having a signature piece of architecture can impact a city. And, Dallas went and built a Calatrava bridge not too long after that. Um, but you've also seen recently, this, this mayor in particular um, has made design a, um, a priority. Yep. And he's, as, his, as his tenure has gone on, I think he's gotten better at figuring out how to make that, that work. And you see value on design and experimental design being more rewarded. Yeah, no, and I think that's, I think it's key. And I really do think it can add a tremendous value to a city economically. I mean, and it's often uh, not understood, I think, or, or just not, there, there's not a lot of buy-in to that. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are many cities around the country that, that are proof that, that if, you, if you invest in design and if you invest in the arts and you invest in culture, that, that the overall economic growth and health of a city can just can, can be yeah. amazing. So, I, and I think Atlanta's right in, at a spot where, where it can start doing that. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Tim Keene. I've met with him several times, and he has incredible, uh, I think, incredibly forward-thinking ideas about what to do with yeah. the city, and, and we've talked about partnering on things, and I think it's, 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 it's a very exciting time. Yeah, yeah, and there's, um, with, Tim has a directness that you don't always see in Atlanta, and I think he can get away with that because there's an acceptance of his message kind of in the wide, wide event. We did, we did a, a panel discussion with Moda, with him. We had 1,400 people sign up for oh, it. Oh, wow. And, and, and so we had, a, it was, um, we, I was surprised by it. I mean, we thought we were going to have 50 people or something. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. incredible. Well, that's an indicator right there that, yeah. that, that there's, it's, you know, I think people are looking for something new. Yeah. So I, mean, I think there's always been the story of Atlanta that it's becoming, but maybe it's finally going to reach whatever that is. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it, there's, it's, it, there's, you know, living in Midtown, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting place, and it's changing so rapidly, and, and you know, I look in, around, and all my neighbors, not all of them, but a lot of my neighbors, they don't have cars, Yeah. they, they want to walk, they want to be out, you know, th it's a whole different kind of attitude about a lifestyle, and and you know Midtown's growing, as everybody knows, yeah. incredibly fast. Yeah. And I and I think again that's an indicator that there's a change 
there's a changing attitude toward how to live in cities. Yeah. And I mean, Atlanta's always going to have the the kind of the suburban areas. I mean, that's what it's 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 you know it's 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 grown up that way. Right. But I think that doesn't have to be at the exclusion of a vital kind of dense downtown area. And I think that's what Tim Keene would like to see. And I think. Yeah. I think there are a lot of people that that want to live that way. And yeah, I, I think that's a good point too. Oftentimes, when we're talking about uh, developing density and so forth, people think it's at the exception of something else, and it becomes an either-or conversation or yeah, whatever it's, issue. It's, it doesn't have to be that. Yeah, and really, it's talking about what we're talking about is expanding the variety of options. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. yeah, you've come to Atlanta in a good time, an exciting time. Um, yeah, no, it is. It is definitely a, uh, an exciting time to be here. So, I guess, I guess, uh, generally, what do you think of the the actual architecture in Atlanta and the architectural culture? Um, well, I think it's you know, there's an interesting uh, legacy here. I think, and it's you know, I, I don't think it's it, it's as strong as it could be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there. Um, uh, but I think there's a willingness, you know, and, 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 a, and a growing interest in, in kind of expanding the ambitions of design yeah. in, in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, I, think I mean, you mentioned John Portman. I mean, and I, I was lucky enough to spend some time with him recently. And he's an extraordinary person. And, and you know, I think his, his legacy uh, in, in our discipline is, is actually underappreciated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just now starting to be appreciated. Yeah. But... You know, when I came here to, to visit, when I was applying for the position, um, one, one of the faculty members here took me down to the, uh, the Marriott Marquis, mm -hmm. and I went into the interior of that space, and I was just blown away. I mean, yeah. I, I honestly think that is one of the most incredible interior spaces in the country. Yeah. And it's right here in Atlanta. And, and so I think there, there's, there's um, and, and in some ways, that type of, of space, that kind of large interior atrium kind of hotel typology, you know, to a large extent was invented by, by John Portman. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think his legacy on this city is incredibly important. I think his legacy on the discipline is very important. And I think it's, you know, I think there's going to come a time when, when it's more appreciated than it is right now. Yeah. Well, I guess that's interesting. And on the same lines, you might have a uh, George Heary. They're both kind of architects who, um, in a way, designed the industry. They, yep, they looked exactly. at it and said, there's a better way to do this. Let's well, it, figure out a way to do this. Is that's there a, a way to... That's a great point. Yeah, when I, when I talk about designing industry, I mean, Portman did that. Yeah. You know, I mean, and so I think there, there's many aspects of his career that, that, that we have a lot to learn about. Yeah. So it's... it's yeah. And it's, it's great that he's so connected to Georgia Tech and that he's here in Atlanta. And I, I, you know, I think his work is part of the interesting and very vital kind of architectural legacy of Atlanta. Yeah, I, I think his projects are decried by a lot of people. One, because there have been changing ideas in architecture since then and what makes good architecture. And two, um, I, I don't think the, the urban environment there always serves them in the best way. And a lot of those streets are around there are basically open yep. transit sewers that just flush cars yep. all day. I mean, that's, so. that's probably you know, a fair criticism to a lot of the buildings in Atlanta is that you know, the street life in downtown just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But this is the kind of surreal aspect of it is that, and Tim Keene made this point, and it was very strong when I, the first time I heard him talk. He's like, you go to downtown Atlanta and, you know, in the evenings and you walk down the sidewalks and you don't see anybody. But then you go into these buildings, you know, 
say the atriums of the of the Marriott Marquis yeah. or another one of the atriums, and it's just th people are everywhere. Yeah. So basically, Atlanta has built itself in such a way that all of the vitality is inside. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's certainly interesting, but I, I think there's actually a way to to evolve downtown to where you don't give that up, but you just bring some of that vitality out to the streets. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it could be an amazing challenge, you know, again, for the next 10 years in Atlanta to, to find a way to do that, to make it also a walkable, you know, livable downtown and, and take the energy and the excitement that's already there mm -hmm. and just reorganize it a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> and enough of those buildings aren't, um, have parts that aren't sacred. I mean, there are parts that are that's functional right. and stuff. But there's a, there's a huge opportunity for retrofitting and reestablishing the, the relationship of those interior spaces to the exterior to see, to see what happens, see, yeah. to see what happens. Yeah. Exactly. And in fact, there's a there's a studio we're doing next semester where uh, uh, Ellen Dunham Jones, one of our uh, urban design faculty members, yeah, yeah. is teaming up with uh, with uh, Tim Keen and uh, and his office oh, to, to study downtown. So th this is the first kind of partnership that we've set up with him. Um, and it, it'll be interesting, but but it's you know we're we're trying to partner up with people like that around the yeah. city to to really to so that the school of architecture can actually have an impact on this future growth of Atlanta that we're talking about. Yeah, I think I think that's a good place to end. I think you've summed up your mission and where you are really well with that statement. So uh, I know I'm excited about a lot of people coming to this city, and a lot of people are, and I think everybody. Not only are there a lot of architects in the city, but they're almost all predominantly our Georgia Tech architects. Yeah, yeah. You don't you, you don't go right. far. There's enough work around here. Yeah, our um, alumni network is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. But I think everybody's very excited to see where the College of Architecture goes and and to see what it can it can pull forth because uh, a lot of people love it and and um, wish more people loved it and saw the value it brought to, to this community yeah. and, and had a bigger influence on the community in general. Yeah. So well, I think we're cool. going to, we're going to try to do that. Cool. Thanks Scott. All right. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Talk to you later. All right.